Let's match the intensity and focus of our singing of praise with intensity and focus upon the scriptures. As we continue our study through the 12, turn with me, please, to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. It's probably going to take you about eight minutes to find it (laughs) because it may be one of the least known books in all the Bible. So as you're turning there, I just have one more announcement regarding the, the preaching schedule upcoming. Uh, I will be uh, out of town for uh, the next couple of weeks. Next week, uh, I'll be in North Carolina visiting family for Thanksgiving. I know it's a week early, but it's our time to see them. You could pray with me as there'll be plenty of opportunities uh, to represent Jesus and the gospel well uh, with my wife's family especially. Uh, one of our own will be preaching next week, Mitch Butel. You can be praying for him. And then the week after that, I'll actually be out of town as well. Uh, Many of you know our missionary, Rob Clark. Uh, He has had a ministry in East Asia uh, for the last uh, basically 15 years. Well, Rob is coming back to Faith Bible on December the 18th. We're happy to have him back. But he's coming back with a renewed opportunity for mission as God has providentially shut doors in the country that he has been serving in in East Asia It seems that he's opening doors in a unique country in West Africa, uh, Togo. Uh, Rob has asked with the elders here if I would be willing to go and basically check out the opportunity for him to reduplicate what he did in China in this country in West Africa. So you can pray for me in a couple weeks uh, as I go to Togo. One of our interns, Luke Little, who is actually from West Africa and speaks French, will be going with me as well. And we're going to basically prospect that for our own, uh, and we're looking forward to that. But please be in prayer. Uh, My parents especially are not happy about me going anywhere over the ocean. I'm 37 years old, and they still hate hearing of me (laughs) traveling internationally. Uh, My family is, of course, um, they're not as concerned. They're excited. Uh, But it is uh, just a different spot. And, you know, I'm not just praying for safety. We want to pray for fruit. We want to pray that God would work in a great way see what our church could potentially do in another dark part of the world. So let's look now to our text here in the book of Nahum. And I just want to read to you these few opening verses so you can get a feel for the book. Starting in verse 1, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. I don't know if you can tell or not, but the book that we are going to discuss today is easily the most controversial of all the 12. In fact, it may be the most controversial book in all of the Bible. The thing that stands out, the thing that makes this so disturbing for many, It's the picture that it portrays of God as one who is full of vengeance, one who doesn't clear the guilty, one who is full of wrath. Uh, We know of these depictions uh, for sure, uh, but think of the metaphors that were also used even in these opening phrases. It says that his way is in the whirlwind. Instead of God being likened to a sunny day, he's likened to a tornado, a hurricane. Uh, It goes on uh, later, and you'll see this. Uh, for, in chapter 3 especially, uh, you're going to see things that will, will shock you. 
as God uh, pours out his wrath upon this uh, particular nation, uh, he will shame them like a a brazen prostitute. Uh, There's one point at which he'll say, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Uh, There's another line a few verses later that says that infants will be dashed in pieces at the head of every street. It's disturbing. It's controversial. And the easiest way that many Christians have chosen to deal with this particular book is to create distance from it. As evidenced by the fact that most of you have probably never heard a message from this text. Can I just do a little survey right now? How many of you have ever heard a sermon from the book of Nahum? Two, three, four, five. Awesome. So out of 300 people here today, there are five who have ever heard a message. Friends, uh, even evangelicals have distanced themselves from this book. Listen to some of these comments from conservative, well, not conservative, but at least Christian commentators. These are people who claim to be Christians and write about the Bible. Uh, One of them calls Nahum a false prophet. Another dismisses Nahum as, and I'm quoting here, a disgrace, an unwelcome part of Scripture. Others isolate Nahum as a specific part of ancient nationalistic history, an outdated war oracle that has no bearing on us today. And some say that this was the way that God worked in the Old Testament. That's probably the most normal way to depict it. It's just, oh, that's, that's God in the Old Testament as opposed to God in the New Testament. And frankly, it doesn't take much to sympathize with the concern. You, I guess you would get why people would kind of distance themselves from this because it is a hard thing to talk about. These are very graphic and disturbing uh, pictures of God. But we need to remember that these are the pictures that God himself has provided. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction. And this is part of the sacred and inspired scriptures. I mean, the reason why we hate this and dis- distance ourselves from this in part is because we hate hate. <laughs> when I was growing up in eastern North Carolina, my parents had a very few rules, but one of them was we were not allowed in the Harris household to say the word hate. I'm not kidding. It was a four-letter word in more ways than one. Like they, just, they thought it was such a strong word that we weren't, even allowed, uh, we weren't even allowed to use it. And in our culture today, hate is just wrong at all costs. And yet, scriptures do sometimes present hate in a positive light. In fact, this has become official dogma of one branch of Christianity over the course of the last several hundred years. It's called theological liberalism. Its heyday was in the early 20th century. Uh, But the basic concept was that, all right, well, we've been outdated in seeing all of the scriptures as inspired, and so we're going to selectively cut out those things that we do not think uh, are as appealing for our own culture and day. And uh, one of the most uh, famous uh, commentators or critics of this, Richard Niebuhr, uh, summarized theological liberalism, which is alive and well, by the way, in Naples, as the following A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. There's a whole branch of people who call themselves Christians who basically would say, no sin, no wrath, no problem. Unfortunately, friends, this embarrassment or distance from the doctrine of God's wrath is not only seen in theological liberalism, but sometimes it is even accidentally seen in conservative evangelicalism. Sure, not many of you have heard messages on this, but also I want you to think how often do we sing songs praising God for his wrath? You know, the closest that we could come today in trying to plan this service was God's holiness and God's righteousness, but we couldn't think of a single song in all of hymnody dealing with the doctrine of God's wrath, which is regularly mentioned in the Psalms and especially here in the book of Nahum. If you have one, you can email it to me later. And I know of two, but they're not hymns, and I'll tell you about those later. But this is a big deal. So 
Here's the deal. We have a challenge. How will we, this morning, ever appreciate or even apply the difficult book of Nahum and its doctrinal center of the righteous wrath of God? Is the Lord actually angry about something? And if so, how are we to respond about it? I mean, what are we to do? I want you to understand this little thing. I need to teach before I teach. The book of Nahum will not make sense to you. It will not connect with you or anyone that you love until we acknowledge and accept the existence of actual evil. Nahum only makes sense if evil actually exists. You may not be aware of it. But it seems that Satan, over the course of the last 300 years, has been gradually working on the minds of the populace to erase evil as a category. I'll give you one anecdote. I don't have time to argue this or prove this. But maybe the quickest way that I could try to illustrate this for you is uh, the recent fascination with uh, the BSU the Behavioral Science Unit at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, Back when I was a kid, we used to actually watch these crime TV shows, and it was really clear, like, who the good guys were and the bad guys were. I remember watching Nick at Night and seeing Dragnet, and, like, it was just really obvious. This guy's bad, police are good, really easy. And then even as uh, I got a little older, uh, there were, like, 5,000 episodes of Law & Order And it was always clear that, okay, this person's guilty and they're going to try to bring the justice system to bear on this particular guilty person. But somewhere between like 2000 and 2005, people just like blew up in fascination with the BSU. It started with this show that I'm sure that some of you have seen or at least heard of called Criminal Minds. And Criminal Minds explored uh, the, the psychology behind all of these serial killers and all the things that they did. And they always had a scientific explanation as to why the particular person was doing the things they did. No longer was it because they were evil, because they were wrong, because they were in sin. Now it was because, well, their parents abused them as a kid, or uh, they accidentally killed an animal, and it, it just put these perverse thoughts in their mind. I mean, this thing became a science. In fact, even Netflix were do a, another show on this, didn't see it, don't care to, called Mind Hunters, in which it explains basically the history of the BSU. Evil was no longer a thing. It was actually something that is just a byproduct of bad circumstances, of, of poor upbringing. Uh, it's not intentional, it's accidental. And so now, even in our own day, people are like, well, um, we don't know that evil exists. I'll give you one more illustration. In fact, there is a show that just came out a couple years ago. It's not that popular, Um, but I, I found the premise of it fascinating. The title of the show is Evil, and you know what the premise is? A Roman Catholic exorcist teams up with this uh, skeptic psychoanalyst, the psychologist, and they team together investigating these mysterious events. And basically, the show is trying to undermine the idea that uh, there is real evil or not. In fact, you know, the scientist is constantly trying to prove that there was some type of scientific or technological explanation as to why evil exists in the world. The point is, friends, If we don't believe that evil exists, this book makes no sense. But the truth is, despite the social imaginary of our day, all of us know that it exists. Because frankly, you as a Christian have to answer for it with your skeptical friends. It's the classic challenge of David Hume against any type of theism. How is it that if God is so good and he's so wise and he's so in control that things are so bad? It's called theodicy. Have you ever had to answer that? Why would a good God create a world that's full of evil? You know, even philosophically, people acknowledge the existence of evil when they try to challenge a Christian theism in any way, shape, or form. But forget the philosophy for a second, friends. This is experiential. Every one of us know that evil has been perpetrated in certain ways in this world, especially geopolitically. 
Just think back in history to the reigns of men like a Joseph Stalin or an Adolf Hitler or a Pol Pot or think to the genocide in Rwanda. Millions upon millions of people brutally massacred. That is a working of evil, my friends. And it isn't just seen in the international scene, friends. It is seen individually. As each of you have either personally suffered at the hands of evil or know someone who has. And I don't want to be too graphic and I don't want to unnecessarily drum up the past, but in especially areas of sexual abuse, we know that an evil power must have been at work for someone ever to experience that type of harm from someone they love, someone they know, someone they trusted. This isn't just hypothetical, it's real. And you know what the book of Nahum says? God knows it and will eliminate it with extreme prejudice. If I were to sum up uh, the book of, of Nehemiah, I mean, excuse me, of Nahum in just a few words, I tried to do this every week. I tried to think through what's the simplest way to explain this to everyone so that they can get it. Uh, I, I came up with the following, and I'm going to warn you that the word that I'm going to use is not one that normal people use. But frankly, I could not think of a stronger word. So here it is, and you can tell me how it could have been better. After the service, <laughs> Nahum's message is very simple. God excoriates evil. Excoriate. That, root, that word has roots in actually skinning something alive. I mean, it is a harsh word. It's not just condemns. God condemns evil in other places. We use the word condemn all the time. When was the last time you used the word excoriate? It's just, we don't come in contact with things that we feel that strongly about. And yet God here excoriates evil. Specifically the evil of Nineveh. Now you're thinking, okay, Nineveh, who really cares about them? Well, let's do a little bit of historical review. A few weeks ago, uh, one of our other pastors, David Mitzemacher, actually preached for us a message on the book of Jonah, and he gave some background information explaining why Jonah didn't ever want to go to Nineveh in the first place. It was the capital of Assyria, and one of the things that they were known for was being especially cruel. No kidding, friends, I debated this with my wife. I can't tell you how cruel they were. She said, I'll be in trouble if I give the details. But if you want to know, just take whatever you think Hitler did and Stalin did and Pol Pot did and turn it up to about 10, whereas that was a 5. These people were sadistic. They were brutal. I would just Maybe highlights are just lots of beheadings, lots of skinning people alive, lots of dismembering people to shame them even in their death. And God, in his grace, gave them a second chance. And so Jonah comes, and about 100 years prior to the book of Nahum, he preaches repentance to them. Just a four-word message, and they respond, and they repent. And, the, and Jesus indicates through some of his sayings that it seems that many of them like, were sincere about that repentance, but it's been 95 to 100 years later. We're talking three to four generations. It was their great-grandparents, and guess what? They didn't pass it on to the next generation. And now you have a group of people who have reverted to the way things have always been. They aren't just generally evil, they are specifically evil. They are cruel and they are powerful. For 200 years, they terrorized the ancient Near East. I mean, they, they were the first ones to exercise a scorched earth policy. Basically, anywhere that they went, they would burn and raise everything. They intentionally tried to do such cruel and sadistic things to engender fear among the nations. I'm not an official historian, but I do read a lot about history, and I don't think I know of another empire that is as uniquely cruel as that of Nineveh and Assyria at large. That being said, the message of Nahum is really simple. Nineveh, Assyria, your reign of terror ends now. The evil that you have propagated will end immediately. And so within these three chapters, we actually see God's excoriation of evil. And you'll see it from three different angles. In chapter one, you're going to see it from above. 
you're going to see this denunciation of the evil that they have propagated from the heavenly realm. It'll be a description of God. In chapter 2, you'll see uh, the excoriation from within. Chapter 2 is vivid. It's going to show you like the behind the scenes look, what it was going to be like for them to suffer the divine wrath of God. It's as if you're actually there. And then chapter 3 finishes up with the excoriation of evil from without. Looking on the outside of things, as if you were on the ground, seeing them being denounced for their crimes, what was it like? And so from these three angles, we learn more about the righteous wrath of God. And friends, this is a source of relief for those who have suffered at the hands of evil or know those who have. And it is a source of warning for those who have still not aligned themselves with Yahweh and his chosen representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at God's excoriation of evil from above. Chapter 1, we just read it. You see a beautiful rehearsal of the attributes of God. Uh, Notice here how it says that the Lord is, and you normally expect just and loving and merciful and kind and compassionate, and you get the shock of your life as the first things out of Nahum's mouth are he is jealous and avenging. Now, I just want to defend the word jealous for a second because sometimes in our context, we often assume that jealousy is some petty thing, you know, like a jealous boyfriend of some kind. But jealousy exercised in God is basically his zeal for that which is right, specifically his zeal for right relationship. Uh, A husband is right to be jealous for his wife and vice versa because they are to have a unique relationship. God is right to be jealous for the affections of his people because they have a unique relationship. This isn't something petty. This is something that's right. It is right for people to be in relationship with God, to be exclusively loyal to him. And so he he praises God from the very beginning as one who is jealous, one who is avenging. And again, we think of vengeance as something that's bad. And yet we know that vengeance is good when rightfully exercised. I mean, think about it. Uh, Disney made uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on a franchise called the Avengers. Why? Because bad things had been propagated toward the planet and these supposed superheroes were supposed to come back and make it right. Nobody was thinking, this is trash, this is wrong. They cheered. Because we know that vengeance in certain cases is right. God is jealous. God is avenging. He is wrathful. Friends, there are certain things that it's right to be angry about. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. Notice this. This is who God is. This is from above. Think of this. The Lord, but mercifully, he's slow to anger. Don't you like that? He's slow to anger. But that's not good news for Nineveh. Because he was slow with them. He gave them a hundred years. And yet he isn't always going to stay his righteous hand. It says he's slow to anger. He's not cemented in mercy. He, He is slow to show anger. He is great in power. He will eventually, look at verse 3, by no means clear the guilty. They just can't get off the hook. If somebody has done that which is wrong, especially against someone else, or against God's even perfect holiness, he will not clear them. And we see these beautiful images at the end of verse 3, God being like a tornado or being like a storm cloud. Uh, In verse 4, notice how he has this power to rebuke the sea and make it dry. He can dry up all the rivers. And then you see the mention of Bashan and Carmel. Uh, These are historically verdant and green places, and yet he could make those places as if they were nothing. This is a powerful picture. Mountains quake before him, hills melt, the earth heaves. Think of that. Somebody like retching, throwing up. The earth will heave before him the world and all who dwell in it god can have that effect on people he is that powerful he is that strong that he can make the physical planet sick who can stand before his indignation who's going to stand against this individually or internationally who could actually resist this type of exercise of wrath who can endure the heat of his anger But notice verse 7, how Nahum weaves not only the righteousness of God together with the rescue of God. Verse 7, 
The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Notice that. This is good news. This is good news. If you're seeking refuge, if you're under attack, you want to know that there is someone who can eliminate the opposition. I don't know about you, friends, but I don't think I would find it that comforting or reassuring if the police force here in our local uh, Collier County area uh, only carried around sticks. I'm glad that they have some means of lethal execution. I'm glad that they can enforce law. I'd hate to know that only the bad guys have the guns. What the text is saying is that the good guy, God, has the guns. And that's good news for those who are righteous. I don't know about you, friends, but when I see a police officer, I'm actually pretty grateful because I'm not breaking the law. I'm not suspicious. I'm, man, I'm glad that somebody is there with that type of power and authority. That is a comfort to me. And you know what verse 7 is saying? God's power and might and his ability to execute and exercise wrath and vengeance, that should be a comfort to those who are right with him. To those, and notice how it says it, not those who do a lot of stuff for him, but those who take refuge in him. Even in the Old Testament, we see here an appeal for the righteous to be those who rest in God. It isn't about works. It isn't about ceremony. It's about their act of relying upon Him and no one else. And this is a beautiful thing, but it continues back with the wrath in verse 8. Uh, But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. And then from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Verse 11 is talking about an individual in particular who would represent this brutality on behalf of that nation. And it could be Asher Banipal, it could be Tiglath Pileser, uh, any of these guys known in history, by the way, were especially brutal. But God says, I don't care who their chosen representative is, I will eliminate them. And now we transition, friends, in this opening section from just a theological statement. I mean, a theological description to a theological declaration. The first few verses just describe God as as one who exercises wrath. But now we're going to hear the speech of God toward the evil nation represented here. And it says in verse 12, Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Now he speaks to his people, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. God's people were living in constant fear and domination of this particular political power. At this point in Israel's history, the northern kingdom has already been taken away and actually depopulated by Assyria. The only one left is the southern kingdom. And currently... Assyria is imposing upon them some tariffs, some taxes, so that they won't attack them. And yet they're already encroaching into their territory. In fact, archaeological evidence represents that in this particular time, Assyria had probably already taken some 50 cities in Judah's territory. They were gradually working their way toward Israel, uh, toward uh, Judah's capital, Jerusalem. And here, uh, the, the comfort of this in verse 13, And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. You will not suffer at the hands of Assyria anymore. I will eliminate them. Look at verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your God's I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. And listen to this. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Can I give you a historical note? I I find this stuff really interesting. If you look at attacks against Christianity after the Enlightenment, one of the constant critiques is the existence of the nation of Nineveh. So think about it. Uh, People in the 1700s and the early 1800s 
are making fun of Christianity because they believed in this place called Nineveh that doesn't even exist. And yet in the mid-1800s, archaeologists digging outside the area of modern-day Mosul unearthed uh, the foundations of the walls of Nineveh. And it's been one of the richest archaeological finds of the last 200 years. Do you, did you hear what God just said would happen to these people? He says, I will bury you. Literally, Babylon and an alliance would come and take over this particular group in 622 B.C. or around there, and they would be buried under the sands of time to the degree that for over 2,000 years, knew, no one even knew they existed. This is the view from above. God will eliminate the greatest threats that you could possibly imagine. He can and will eradicate evil. That's exactly what is going on here. You see it from above. He is cutting it off, and this is of comfort to his people. Look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You know why this book is comfort for God's people? Because their enemy is eliminated. He is saying, hey, you will be able to get back to worship as usual. I will eliminate this particular threat from you. You will not experience injustice and cruelty at their hand anymore. This is good news. The wrath of God, ironically, is good news for those who find refuge in Yahweh. We do well to remember, friends, that our God is not just some gentle giant some grandfatherly figure sitting up above with a long beard and in a rocking chair, uh, nicely and kindly looking down on all of his children as they kind of mess up with one another. He's overlooking it. He is holy. He is righteous. He exercises vengeance and wrath against all those who rebel against him. Friends, our modern-day hymns do not reflect this, but I think they should. I told you that uh, Mark and I had trouble trying to plan the service around this particular theme of the wrath of God because even conservative evangelical Christians aren't that comfortable with the topic. But I did find two songs that we can't sing. We can't sing them here. If I did, I'd get fired uh, because they're so controversial in the way that they're presented also in the lyrics that are sung, but could I commend them to you for your own personal listening pleasure? You want to think about the wrath of God? One is The Lord is a Warrior by Matt Papa with Shy Lynn. Now I'm going to warn you, it sounds really heavy metally, so some of you conservative types are going to cringe at it, but I don't know how you sing about the wrath of God with a piano and a harp. It, it should appropriately have a harsher tone the Lord is a warrior. Check it out. And then one more is called Rise Up by a young man named Ben Shive. I especially like this one. It talks about the day of God's retribution, that in the end when he will rise up. Friends, we need the wrath of God in our register of praise. Like, it, it completes the view of him. Yes, let us sing of his love and his mercy and his justice, but we learn of God in the scriptures that are crystal clear and unapologetic about the fact that he is not only kind, but he is also right. And he will exercise wrath upon those who rebel against him. That's the view from above. But we also see that God excoriates evil from within. All right, here you get another angle on Yahweh's excoriation of evil and I find this to be amazing. What you're going to notice in chapter 2 in particular is uh, some of the most vivid poetry in all of the Old Testament. Don't read it yet. I want to prepare you for it. For those who know how to interpret ancient Near Eastern poetry, they think that what happens here in chapter 2 is without equal. From a literary perspective... 
It is one of the high points of all of ancient Near Eastern literature. Insofar as it, it will fill your mind with so many images and pictures. Uh, one says it this way, Gerhard von Rad. None of the minor prophets seem to equal Nahum in boldness, ardor, and sublimity. His prophecy, too, forms a, a regular and perfect poem. The exordium is not merely magnificent, it is truly majestic. The preparation for the destruction of Nineveh and the description of its downfall and desolation are expressed in the most vivid colors and are bold and luminous in the highest degree. All right, so what's going to happen here? I'm just going to read it, but I want you to know that in the first couple verses, you're going to have uh, an official warning, and basically God is going to be making fun of Nineveh, saying, all right, you get ready for me to come and battle you. And then in verses 3 through 10, you're going to see a grisly description of that city falling. And then he's going to taunt them and make fun of them in verses 11 through 13. Are you ready for this? Let's read it together. Listen to the Word of God. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet, the chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly through the streets, they rush to and fro through the squares, they gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers, they stumble as they go, they hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore uh, tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. And here's the summary. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts or armies, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. And this is the word of the Lord. Did you see it? you feel the vividness of that description? He gives them this graphic preview of what it was going to be like on the day that he chose to exercise his judgment upon them. The first two verses, he makes fun of them. He says, basically, hey, you can muster up all the strength you want to, but the Lord will, in the end, avenge his people. In verses 3 and 4, you've got this description of the invading army coming in and taking over. It even mentions the color of the shields in verse 3. It says, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Did you know that the archaeologist who actually excavated this particular site found out that the attacking army was that of Babylon with a couple of other uh, armies in league with them And the Babylonian army in particular, to intimidate its enemies, would dye their shields red. They did this for two reasons. One, it looks cool. That's at least my interpretation. The second is because they didn't ever want the enemy to know if there was blood on the shield because that would give them some strength and some stamina and some encouragement. They wanted to hide the fact that they were even wounded, and so they, they brandished red shields. I mean, the prophecy is as specific as the color of the shields, and it came to pass. Another interesting historical fact is these chariots racing madly through the streets. 
In fact, uh, many believe that it was uh, the Babylonians in particular who were some of the first to actually place projectiles on the sides of the wheels, things like swords, so that they could actually just mow down individuals once they were able to get into the city streets. Babylon was an impenetrable fortress. You could, um, excuse me, uh, Nineveh was an impenetrable fortress uh, from many vantage points. At some places, the walls were 100 feet high and in many cases, 100 feet deep. There was a moat that went all the way around the city that was 100 feet wide and 60 feet deep. There were two walls, actually, that protected the inner palace, and it seemed absolutely impenetrable. In fact, it also had one of the most strategic natural resources available at the particular time, the River Kosa, which flowed not only around the moat, but under the walls into the river so that they could always have a source of water. But I want you to notice something interesting that happened. And again, the archaeology uh, points uh, that this uh, may have actually happened in this particular case. No one could penetrate the walls. So even when Babylon came to try to siege the city, they could not get in. And yet God allowed a period of rain that would cause the Kosa River to flood undermining these particular walls uh, that were so impenetrable, causing their collapse, and then that coalition of armies would invade on the basis of a flood. Notice uh, particularly uh, verse 6, the river gates are open, the palace melts away. You know what that's like when you build a, a sandcastle and the water starts rushing in? It flooded. The, 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 the palace began to fall. People go in and they looted them. And notice verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. You ever seen that happen with one of those little two-foot pools you buy for your kids and that you always regret doing it because it leaves a big dead spot in your grass? Not speaking from experience. <laughs> There's that side. You know, once, once one of those kids jumps on the side, the whole thing collapses and everything comes running out. That's exactly what happened here. I mean, from within, this is absolutely devastating. And then look at verses 11 through 13. This is where God makes fun of them because they called themselves the lion's den. You know how we have modern mascots like people are the bears or the lions? Their mascot was the lion. They considered their own city to be the lion's den, and now he's making fun of them. So where's your lion's den now? In fact, uh, their primary uh, goddess, Ishtar, uh, was another word for lioness. That's why she's called out in specific and just as God made fun of the gods of Egypt, so also here he makes fun of the gods of Assyria and says, you are going down. Why? Because, verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord of armies. When God is against you, friends, there is no resisting it. They thought that they were impenetrable. They thought that their defenses were impervious. And yet they were fully and finally eradicated. Friends, this vivid picture of judgment is intended to have an impact. God isn't just entertaining us with concrete language. He wants you to see and feel the horror of judgment. And did you recognize that even in this description, that there are precursors of the wrath of God described in the New Testament at the lips of Jesus, both in the Gospels and in Revelation, when he describes eternal hell? Back in verse 8, we have mention of fire of chapter 1. In verse 10, we have uh, mention of darkness. I mean, this, friends, is just a preview, a movie trailer for the judgment that is ultimately to come and filled out in more detail in the New Testament. Did you hear, by the way, uh, when uh, the, the scriptures were being read earlier, that description of the Lord Jesus coming down with flames of fire in his eyes and he's going to throw people into eternal judgment. It is in the very next chapter that we have the most vivid and graphic dis de description of the lake of fire. Friends, this is vivid on purpose. I know that Christians sometimes get accused of fear-mongering for explaining uh, the real feelings of the wrath of God that people will experience one day, but if it keeps someone from going there, so be it. Guilty as charged. I wouldn't want anybody to experience this real judgment. It is not philosophical. It is not metaphysical. It is real. It is actual. It is eternal. And God warns us of it ahead of time. 
which gives us in His grace the opportunity to flee the wrath that is to come. You know those sweet conversations that you have with your kids like when they're going to bed? I want to admit something. I don't have as many of those as I like. (laughs) You know, it just seems like my kids aren't as um, intentional (laughs) about that. But every once in a while, they do. And it struck my heart last night as my now eight-year-old. He didn't know. I mean, we had read Nahum a couple times, I think, this this week around the dinner table. But um, he's never asked this before. He says, um, Daddy, where does everybody go that doesn't go to heaven? And so I explained to him hell. He said, what's hell like? I was like, well, I don't, Silas, I don't like to talk about it, but it's dark. And there's a, a fire and flame. And this is what he asked me. I did, this is no setup. This is just God's providence. Somebody needs to hear this. He says, does it last forever? I said, yeah. Yeah, it lasts forever. I said, it's so bad, Silas. It's so bad. I said, did you know that's why Daddy does what he does? The reason why I want to do what I do is because I, w- I don't want people to go there. I want to tell them the truth. I want them, <laughs> I want them to know how they can be rescued from this. I said, do you, do you trust Jesus for this rescue? Where will you go? He says, Dad, I trust Jesus. I was like, oh, good. You know, we'll see. He's good. And then he said, you know, I want to tell people about the gospel too. This is a big deal, Daddy. We should tell people about the gospel. Here we are, friends. I don't know. A little over 12 hours later. I'm telling you the gospel. You don't have to suffer that. The eternal wrath of God was poured out on His Son. He fully absorbed it for all those who find their refuge in Him. Have you relied upon Him? Have you trusted in Him alone? He died, was buried, rose again so that you would not have to experience the real, white, hot, eternal wrath of God. God excoriates evil from above, from within. And in the last chapter, we see that he excoriates evil from without. You get one more parting picture of how much God hates evil in chapter 3. And in particular here, you're going to see that God's going to put a full and final end to Nineveh And the reason I say it's from without is because it's like you're uh, seeing Nineveh's funeral. You're you're seeing like the end of the legacy. You just happen to be there. It's not, you're not feeling what they feel now. Now you're like a bystander who is noticing uh, what will happen with these people, what God has done with them. And particularly, you'll notice uh, it begins with the word woe. Woe. It's a word that we don't use uh, very often. Uh, But if you know any Hasidic Jews even today, sometimes they may say, oi vey. Oi is the word for woe. It is a a formal denunciation of something as being bad. In particular, it would be used in funeral processions. You know that they did funerals in a way that is unique to any other time uh, or period in the world. They made a big deal out of people dying. And so people would be trailing uh, the, the, the the individual who had died when they go to their place of final rest and they would be crying out, oi, 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 woe, woe, woe. Here, God in funeral declaration, but without the sorrow says, woe, you're dead. This is bad for you. Woe to the bloody city. All full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Now I want you to notice this because it will be confusing to you. What's going on here? He's actually explaining, look at me for a second. He's actually explaining why death is being pronounced to them. He's going to show their cruelty. He's now depicting what they were like in battle toward others. So 
Notice his, basically, his explanation as to why they deserve this woe, why they deserve this judgment, and then you'll see an explanation of what the judgment would be like. So listen again. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. That's part of the reason. No end to the prey. They just preyed upon everybody. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of coarse corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. This was their thing. They, they showed mercy to no one. And by the way, friends, again, without being too graphic, I want you to know that they did not limit their onslaught to adults. I'll just leave it at that. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. The reason why she's depicted as a prostitute is because uh, their craving for power was like some people's craving for sexual experience. And other people looked at it and were like, oh, we want that power. It was almost like they were advertising like how they could have the good life in this sensuous appeal for things and stuff and superiority. Notice verse 5. God says it again. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And he says, you've basically known honor, but now you're going to know shame. I'm not going to comment much on this because I don't need to, but he will shame them like a brazen prostitute. Notice the description. And will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? In the next few verses, he even points to other enemies that they took down and said, you're going to suffer the same thing that you put on them. He mentions specifically uh, the Egyptians, Thebes and Cush. He says, whatever happened to them is going to happen to you. And by the way, that's where that phrase about babies having their heads dashed in is used. Because Assyria practiced that cruelty, they would suffer that kind of cruelty. It says in verse 10, they would become an exile they would go into captivity. Verse 11, you will also be drunken on basically the wine of God's wrath. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from your enemy. All your fortresses, notice this, are like fig trees with first ripe figs. He says, look, your fortresses are ripe for the picking. All you got to do is shake the tree and people will be able just to catch it with their mouths. You're that ready for destruction. He, He taunts them in verse 13. He says, behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide for, or open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Uh, let's not be overly concerned about the, the charge of the soldiers being like women. In true hand-to-hand combat, unlike in our own military where things are equal with a gun in hand, uh, it was a big deal for someone to have to be strong and have physical superiority over another. So basically, for them to be called women in the, mar- the arena of hand-to-hand combat was a major insult. What I want you to see is that what he is officially denouncing here, at least from the outside, is like, your glory is gone. You will be humiliated. This will come to an end. He mentions locusts coming upon them. He mentions their leaders in verses 17 and 18, fleeing from them. And then look at verse 19, and it concludes, there is no easing your hurt your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. They're, nobody's sad. But notice this. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Friends, what the Lord does here is he is eliminating a source of evil. I don't know if you've ever had to meet with an oncologist. It's a cancer doctor. I think what you would want of that oncologist is that he would eliminate the evil that would destroy everything in your body. As the divine oncologist, Yahweh declares here that he will fully and finally eliminate the evil that has spread its way through those nations in that historical time. And he will fully and finally put an end to it in a day to come. Friends, this is something to rejoice over. Do you remember uh, May the 2nd, 2011? 
You probably don't remember the date. But for those of you who are old enough, you may remember the event. That was the day that Osama bin Laden was uh, captured and executed um, by our own Navy SEALs. Now, for those of us who had lived up through that time, uh, knowing the, the reign of terror that he had propagated through his political institution, seeing the beheadings, knowing what happened at 9-11, uh, there, there was no weeping in my heart, let me just be frank, uh, when I found out that he had been eliminated. Why? Because he had been propagating, as verse 19 says, unceasing evil. Friends, it's good news that the righteous God of wrath eliminates sources of evil. That's not a bad thing. What happens here in verse 19 is the end of the reign of terror. He says it's not going to be this way anymore. And in a small way, friends, this was a picture of what would be better portrayed in the book of Revelation specifically chapter 19 that we read earlier, when God will fully and finally eliminate all evil for good. He did it here in part, but he will do it there in full. And this is good news. It will be eliminated with extreme prejudice. I know that the book of Nahum is controversial because of its focus on the wrath of God, and yet I would remind you that the aspects of God which most disturb us may be exactly, listen to this, what we need. Maybe. We long to know His strength, wrath, greatness, sovereignty, justice, more than we even realize. Let me finish with this story. It's from uh, John Piper. He tells about uh, a prayer week that he had at his church several years ago. And I just will pick up on his words here. He said, I decided to preach on the holiness of God from Isaiah 6, and I resolved on the first Sunday of the year to unfold the vision of God's holiness found in the first four verses of that chapter. And you would know that where the angels cry out, holy, 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 and the post shake. It's a fearful text. He continues, so I preached on the holiness of God and did my best to display the majesty and glory of such great and holy God. I gave not one word of application to the lives of our people. Application is essential in the normal course of preaching, but I felt led that day to make a test. Would the passionate portrayal of the greatness and holiness of God in and of itself meet the needs of the people? What I didn't realize was that not long before this particular Sunday, one of the young families of our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were there that Sunday morning and sat under that message. And I wonder how many advisors to us pastors today would have said, Pastor Piper, can't you see your people are hurting? Can't you come down out of the heavens and get practical? Don't you realize what kind of people sit in front of you on Sunday? Some weeks later, I learned the traumatic story of that family. And the husband took me aside after a service and said, John, these have been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what's gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me that first week of January. It has been the rock we can stand on. Beloved, the wrath and power of God are relevant regardless of whether or not they ever turn up on a survey of the congregation's felt needs. Some of us may or some of us soon will need to be assured that God will fully and finally excoriate evil. And that's what you've seen here. From above, from within, from without, it'll be gone one day. I think that this just leaves us with three simple, practical points. One is look out. Look out. If you are not for God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are against Him. 
the wrath that he exercises upon those who were so obviously rebelling against him will also be exercised against those who do not so obviously rebel against him. I think there's three categories of people that we need to be aware of sitting in this room right now. There are the rescued by faith. There are the rebellious who are just living their own way, doing their own thing, not subjected to uh, the righteousness, I mean, to the rescue of God and his rule. And then the group that I'm most concerned about, friends, is the religious. There are some of you, on account of just your own sense of internal goodness, think that because of the religious and good things that you do, that somehow you're going to be able to placate the wrath of God. Maybe you've given enough money, or maybe you've gone through enough religious ceremony, or maybe you've identified yourself with some type of church or denomination, but I warn you, friends, that the wrath of God still abides upon you unless it has been satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And until you turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you will not be saved. You will face God's wrath. And I am telling you, look out. Look out. There's another practical command for us here. And this is helpful for everyone in the room. Look back. Look back. If you're in Christ this morning, you need to remember something. You at one time were, as Paul called it, a child of wrath. What is predicted here in the book of Nahum is what you actually deserved for your rebellion against him. I know sometimes we think it's only for the the cruel, powerful types like the, the nation of Assyria. But do you remember what plunged the entire race into eternal separation from God? The eating of a piece of fruit. God is that holy. Nothing, nothing is allowed to go against him. And yet we sin in way worse ways than eating pieces of fruit, and we do it often. And yet the truth is that a child of wrath is what we were. Now we are a child of the righteous God. If you've trusted in Christ, that's what you used to be. And now you can actually step into this Thanksgiving season truly thankful. Look back to what you deserve so that you can appreciate what you now have in Christ. It's been satisfied. You're going to be sitting around dinner tables with your family and the conversation's going to come up. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And some of you, if you were to have that conversation right now, are going to be like, man, I need to work in the gospel. Kind of obligatory. To spend 10 minutes thinking about this and you won't be able to stop yourself. You have been rescued from the righteous wrath of God on account of what His Son has already accomplished for you. Look back. And then one final thing. Look up. Look up. We live in a world that is dominated by bad news. I mean, you look at just the world scene, and it's always someone else or something else that just seems to be propagating evil around the world. And no offense to anyone from these countries, but just speaking from my limited American perspective, I reflected over the countries that have caused me angst in recent years. Sometimes it's North Korea, sometimes it's China, sometimes it's a local manifestation of something like the Taliban. A few years ago, it was ISIS. If you look back a few years before that, and even now sometimes I think of Iran, and then I think back into history to Nazi Germany and communist Russia, or I think more generally to the headlines filled with pedophiles and pornographers and cartels and drug lords, and then I can even make it more personal thinking about abusive parents and spouses or caretakers or serial killers or rapists. All of the enemies of God will one day be fully and finally eliminated. Look up at a righteous God who will put an end to the reign of terror of sin. You may not need it today, but you will need it one day. And you may not need it individually, but someone you know may need it. 
some of the best pastoral counsel that I received from pastors much older and wiser than me is, Justin, prepare your people for suffering before they're in it. Once they're in it, their instincts are going to take over. You've got to prepare them beforehand. Friends, this is my best attempt to prepare you beforehand. You better learn to look up. Because sometimes if you just keep looking around, it will beat you into despair. Understand, God reigns. He is righteous. And He will fully and finally eliminate evil. My small group and I were talking about the old hymn. You know it well. I'll read these lines. We'll pray. And we'll sing a song of praise and be done. You know it well. It's a little over 100 years old now. This is my father's world. The last verse doesn't get as much attention, but I think it should. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Look up, friends. He reigns. He reigns. And thus evil will be fully and finally eliminated. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your righteous wrath. You are good in displaying it, not only in history, but in time to come. You were good and right to pour out that wrath on your Son uh, so that those who were trusting you would not have to suffer that ever. There is no condemnation. Lord, that is good. And so we praise you for your righteousness. We praise you for your rescue. And we pray, we pray for those who are here who have yet to receive the rescue of God in Jesus Christ, may even now, even today, Lord, they Lord, turn from their sin and trust in Him and be saved and be converted and, and be reconciled to You, even now. And for those who are reconciled and just struggling with the problem of evil, not just in philosophical ways, but practical ones, Lord, keep them looking up to You who reigns and rules and will one day eliminate our final enemy. And we long for that day where we praise you as our holy God who reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.